Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker, your host. We work our way through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, studying not only the Christ whom he preached, but the way in which he preached that Christ. We're distributed by Media Gratii, and for more resources like this, including a biographical film on Spurgeon's life and labours, you can go to mediagratii.org. You can also sign up there for a newsletter, and uh, you can also find some other podcasts of the same kind if you're interested. Uh, Really, this uh, experimental or experiential uh, Calvinism, this uh, biblical religion, and we hope it comes to you uh, both full of light and heat. So today we're looking at the next sermon in our sequence. We've reached sermons 759 to 765, and it's that 765th sermon that we're looking at today. The title of it is Grace, the One Way of Salvation, and it's drawn from Acts chapter 15 and verse 11. Spurgeon doesn't waste much time getting to the substance of the text, and he approaches it in an interesting way. He shows that he's been thinking carefully about this particular text and how he might approach it. He comes at it from three angles. He's using the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts 15, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they Paul and Barnabas had been preaching the gospel among the Gentiles, uh, but there was this tension and it came to a head in Jerusalem when the decision came up as to how the, uh, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers ought to be thinking about these things, how they ought to be relating to one another, really had a great deal to do with the, uh, the very nature of the gospel itself. And Peter, speaking with his usual boldness and clearness, says Spurgeon, declared that it would be wrong to put a heavy yoke upon the necks of the Gentiles, which neither that generation of Jews nor their fathers had been able to bear. And he concluded his address by saying, in effect, although these people are not circumcised and ought not to be, yet we believe that there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, but by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. So then, the first thing that Spurgeon would have us take that uh, statement as is an apostolical confession of faith. It's a credo. It begins with the statement, we believe. And he says we're going to call it the Apostles' Creed, and we may rest assured that it has quite as clear a right to that title as that highly esteemed composition which is commonly called the Nicene, or Apostles' Creed. Peter is speaking for them all, And he says, we believe. And when an apostle speaks in that way, says Spurgeon, we're all attention. We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Says Spurgeon, there's a great deal of talk in our day, foolish, vainglorious, idiotic, senseless talk, as we think, about apostolical succession. At which point you might have said, please can you speak more plainly, Mr. Spurgeon? We're not quite sure what you mean. As uh, somebody said to me the other day, uh, he's, uh, he's not exactly known for his ambiguity. Now, some people, says Spurgeon, think they have the direct line from the apostles running right at their feet, and others believe that those who make the greatest boast about it have the least claim to it. So Spurgeon uh, is now concerned then with this apostolical declaration or confession of faith. 
and he deals with it first in terms of things that are not part of it. It is clear, he says, that the apostles did not believe in ritualism. He says nothing whatever about ordinances, ceremonies, apostolical gifts or prelatical unction. His theme is grace and grace alone. And those, my brethren, are the true successors of the, of the apostles who teach you that you are to be saved through the unmerited favour and free mercy of God, agreeing with Peter in their testimony, we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved. So here is another one of those uh, blows aimed at uh, puseism, or ritualism, uh, sacramentalism, the idea that we can be uh, saved by the virtue that is in uh, some person other than Christ, some uh, ritual or process in the church of Jesus Christ, so-called. Peter excludes ritualism by insisting upon grace alone as the grounds of our salvation. Then another thing is very clear here, that the apostle did not believe in self-righteousness. The creed of the world is, do your best and it will be all right with you. To question this is treason against the pride of human nature, which evermore clings to salvation by its own merits. Every man is born a Pharisee. Self-confidence is bred in the bone and will come out in the flesh. But Peter says, no, it is not by works, it is not by self-righteousness. We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. And so Spurgeon insists... We believe that if we are ever saved at all, we must be saved gratis, saved as the gratuitous act of a bountiful God, saved by gift, not by wages, saved by God's love, not by our own doings or merits. This is the Apostles' Creed. Salvation is all of grace from first to last, and the channel of that grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved and lived and died and rose again for our salvation. Those who preach mere morality or set up any way except that of trusting in the grace of God through Christ Jesus preach another gospel and they shall be accursed even though they preach it with an angel's eloquence. Then he says again it's clear that the apostles did not believe in salvation by the natural force of free will. There's no glorifying of free will. It's not through our own unbiased intent not the volitions of our own well-balanced nature. He says, I wish I had a voice of thunder to proclaim in every street in, of London this glorious doctrine, by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is the old Reformation doctrine. This is the doctrine which will shake the very gates of hell if it be but faithfully preached. And so he insists, if you are ever to get comfort, believe me, dear hearer, you must receive the doctrine of salvation by free grace into your soul as the delight and solace of your heart, for it is the living truth of the living God, not by ritualism, not by good works, not by our own unaided free will are we saved, but by the grace of God alone. And he quotes the hymn, Not for the works which we have done or shall hereafter do hath God decreed on sinful worms salvation to bestow. The glory, Lord, from first to last is due to thee alone. Ought to ourselves we dare not take or rob thee of thy crown. So this is what is uh, excluded by this Apostles' Creed, but it implies or contains important 
positive truths. Most evidently, the doctrine of human ruin, says Spurgeon. We believe that we shall be saved, so we need to be saved. Oh, the fearful flattery which has been heard from some pulpits, groans the preacher, anointing corruption with the unction of hypocrisy, besmearing the abomination of our depravity with sickening eulogiums. He's saying basically where people are holding up the, uh, the creature, uh, praising lost mankind. Peter, he says, would give no countenance to such false prophets. Peter is going to faithfully testify that man is dead in sin. I'm sure, says Spurgeon, that he was a firm believer in what are called the doctrines of grace, as he was certainly in his own person an illustrious trophy and everlasting monument of grace. What a ring there is in that word grace. Why, it does one good to speak it and to hear it. It is indeed a charming sound, harmonious to the ear. How it suits a sinner, he goes on. How it cheers a poor forlorn wanderer from God. Grace! Peter was not in a fog about this. His witness is clear as crystal, decisive as the sentence of a judge. He believed that salvation was of God's free favour and God's almighty power, and he speaks out like a man. We believe that we are saved by grace. Furthermore, there's a decided and explicit statement concerning the atonement, sparkling in the text like a jewel in a well-made ring. Oh, that everyone were as clear about the atonement as Peter is. Peter had seen his master, nay more, his master had looked at him and broken his heart, and afterwards bound it up and given him much grace. And now Peter is not content with saying, we believe that we shall be saved through grace, but he is careful to word it, we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the the, the emphasis there. Uh, just as an aside at this point, before we go on with what Spurgeon says, so important that we don't isolate grace as if it's some cold commodity separate from Christ himself. In that, in that way, it's not grace that saves us. It's a gracious God who saves us through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So grace is God's grace in Christ. It's, it's not a, a mere formula. It's not a, a kind of a saving substance separated from the Savior. Dear hearers, he says then, never have any vital any questions upon the vital point of redemption by blood. This is a fundamental truth. He who is in darkness upon that subject has no light in him. What the sun is to the heavens, that the doctrine of a vicarious satisfaction is to theology. Atonement is the brain and spinal cord of Christianity. Take away the cleansing blood, and what is left of the guilty? Deny the substitutionary work of Jesus, and you have denied all that is precious in the New Testament. Never, never let us endure one wavering, doubtful thought upon this all-important truth. And there's a third thing positively here. Not just the doctrine of human ruin, not just the reality of the atonement, but also the final perseverance of the saints. A gospel which proclaims an uncertain salvation is a miserable imposition. Away with such a gospel! Away with such a gospel! It is a dishonor to Christ. It is a discredit to Christ God's people. It neither came from the scriptures of truth, nor does it bring glory to God. Peter can say, we believe we shall be saved. 
It's not the language of mere possibility. It's a certainty that is here. So here then is what is in the Apostles' Creed. We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. Negatively, there's no ritualism, there's no self-righteousness, and there's no free will. Positively, Peter states human ruin, he states divine atonement, and he states the final perseverance of the saints. Now, once we understand then what Peter had in mind in speaking in this way, Spurgeon takes it next as the converted moral man's statement. The converted moral man's statement. And here I think uh, Spurgeon is, is brilliant at catching our attention with something that perhaps we might not quite have expected because we haven't pondered the text in the way that he has. So he says, observe and admire the way in which Peter talks about this. A company of Jews have assembled to discuss a certain matter. Some of them look very wise and bring up certain suggestions that are rather significant. They're saying, well, perhaps these Gentile dogs may be saved. Yes, Jesus Christ told us to go and preach the gospel to every creature. Therefore, no doubt, he must have included these Gentile dogs. We do not like them, though and must keep them as much under our rules and regulations as we can. We must compel them to be circumcised. We must have them brought under the full rigour of the law. We cannot excuse them from wearing the yoke of bondage. And Peter turns the tables on them. Not that these Gentile dogs can be saved just like you can, but no, we believe that you may be saved even as they it was just as if I should have a company of persons here now, says Spurgeon, who have been very bad and wicked, who had plunged into the deepest sin. But God's grace has met with them and made them new creatures in Christ Jesus. There's a church meeting, and when these persons are brought before the church, suppose there were some of the members who should say, Yes, we believe that a drunkard may be saved, and a person who's been a harlot may perhaps be saved too. But imagine now that I were to stand up and reply, now, my dear brethren, I believe that you may be saved even as these. What a rebuke it would be. And this is precisely what Peter meant. Oh, said he, do not raise the question about whether they can be saved. The question is whether you who've raised such a question will be saved. We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. So he seems in this dispute to take the objectors aback and to put the Gentile believers first in order to cast out the bad, proud, wicked, devilish spirit of self-righteousness. So Spurgeon here is, uh, is very wise in, in dealing with the souls of the people who are listening to him. And he says, you need to understand then that this could be taken as the, uh, the statement of a moral man who has been converted. And he talks about, for example, someone has been brought up with Christian parents teaching them the truth. He reminds them that they have a great reason for thankfulness because there's been a, a restraint upon some of the outward expressions of sin. He says some of us never were inside a theatre in our lives, never saw a play and do not know what it is like. Uh, worth remembering here that uh, the, the theatre and the plays at Spurgeon's time were, were really moral pits uh, full of uh, typically vileness and, 
and all manner of uh, immorality and ungodliness, both in terms of the general behavior uh, in the place and also some of the things that were being put on the stage. He says there are some here who perhaps never did frequent a tavern, do not know a lascivious song and never uttered an oath. But, he says, if you are ever saved, you will have to be saved in the same way as those who have been permitted to plunge into the most outrageous sin. Your being restrained from overt offences is a favour for you to be grateful for, but not a virtue for you to trust in. Such a helpful distinction. Thank you, Lord God, that I have not been permitted to run into some of the more vile and outward expressions of my sinful heart's appetites. But even though God has been pleased to restrain me, yet I thank you, Lord, that uh, there is a Christ to save me. For that restraint, that keeping back, is not a virtue upon which I trust. You moral people, says the preacher, must be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Saved even as they, the outcasts, the wanderers. You will not, you cannot be saved in any other way and will not be saved at all if you do not submit to this way. You will not be permitted to enter heaven, good as you think yourselves to be, unless you come down to the terms and conditions which sovereign grace has laid down, namely that you should trust Christ and be saved by grace even as they. And then he uh, tries to, to prove the point. He gives an example of having 20 people who've been morally and outwardly good from their youth up, others who've been uh, indulgent and wicked from their earliest childhood, and he says, but they're all fully partakers of the curse. And then he uses a bit of local colour, and I'm sure that wherever you're listening to this, uh, however big the town or city or even the village that you're living in, you dwellers in Belgravia are as altogether born in sin as the denizens of Bethnal Green. So think of the, the, the richest, the poshest, the most upwardly mobile part of the world where you live, and then think of the scuzziest, scummiest, vilest place. That's the kind of contrast that Spurgeon's trying to, to con construct. You dwellers in Belgravia, that's posh, are as altogether born in sin as the denizens of Bethnal Green. The West End is as sensual as the East. Hyde Park royal area, has no natural superiority of nature over seven dials, a, a pit of uh, criminality. The corruption of those born in the castle at Windsor is as deep as the depravity of workhouse children. Really good, colourful, earthy, gripping language for the context in which he's in. If you've been outwardly moral, I'm thankful for it. And I ask you to be thankful for it too. But here's the point again. Do not trust in that for out for justification, seeing that you must be saved even as the worst of criminals are saved, because in heart, if not in life, you have been as bad as they. Again, I think there's something really helpful there. Uh, I remember uh, often growing up hearing uh, children who'd been brought up in, in homes where the gospel had at least been in some measure preached, saying something like, I wish I wish that I'd sort of sinned grievously and grossly and scandalously because then at least I would know that I was a sinner and I'd know what I was turning from. And and I still think, oh, if the Lord taught us what our hearts were like, first of all, we'd not be wishing that those hearts could have their full expression. And secondly, we'd not be saying, I don't know that I'm a sinner. In heart, if not in life, we are as bad as any.
Moreover, says Spurgeon, the method of pardon is the same in all cases. Moralists need to be washed in the same purifying bath, the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. There's a robe of righteousness to cover the best living among professors. The same robe of righteousness covered Saul of Tarsus, the bloody persecutor. If you of unspotted outward character are ever to have a robe of true righteousness, you must wear the same one as he wore. There cannot be another nor a better. You see, whatever we we are or have been or have been kept from being, we believe with the apostle that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we who have not plunged into black sin shall be saved even as they who have done so. So come, 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 pleads the preacher, you sick souls, come to my master. Do not say we would come if we were worse. Do not say we would come if we were better, but come as you are, come just as you are. Oh, if you be a sinner, Christ invites you. If you be but lost, remember Christ came to save the lost. Do not be picking out your case and making it to be different from others, but come and welcome. Weary and heavy-laden sinner, come and welcome, come even now. Now Spurgeon's preaching that, remember, to the moral man. Uh, he's, he's broadened it out a little bit, but he's preaching that to the person who might have thought that they had some virtue of their own. And he's rem- reminding them that if they're being saved by grace, then it is all of grace grace as it is in Jesus Christ. And then he flips it again. The text would not be fairly treated if I did not use it as the confession of the great outward sinner when converted, those who have indulged in gross sin. So here again is the wisdom of the preacher turning it this way and that. He says, I rejoice over the vilest who have been converted. More precious are you by far in my eyes than all the precious gems which kings delight to wear, for you are my eternal joy and crown of rejoicing. And he says, now, I want you to understand that uh, whatever you are or have been, we believe that we shall be saved even as the best are saved. And he says, let me split that up a little bit. First of all, think of the very poor believer financially poor, economically uh, bereft of, of, of anything of any value. How are you going to get into heaven? And when you do, are you going to be placed in a corner as a pauper pensioner? Do you think that Christ will give you less than the wealthy who have been saved? Not at all. You, you leave your poverty when you get to glory. And you're not saved on the basis of your riches or your poverty. It's not because you have much or that you have little. And just because you have little doesn't mean that you are cast out. The poor people shall be saved just as others. They shall trust in Jesus Christ and brought into his glory and his kingdom. Others of you, he says, are not so much poor in money as you're poor in useful talent. You come up to chapel, you fill your seat, and that's about all you can do. You drop your weekly offering into the box, and when that's done, you've done all or nearly all in your power. You cannot preach, you could not conduct a prayer meeting, you have hardly courage enough to give away a tract. Well, my dear friend, you're one of the timid ones, one of the little Benjamins. Now, do you expect that the Lord Jesus Christ will give you a second-hand robe to wear at his wedding feast? And when you sit at the banquet, do you think he will serve you from cold and inferior dishes? Oh, no, you say. No, some of our brothers have great talents and we're glad that they have. We rejoice in their talents but we believe that we shall be saved even as they. 
we do not think that there will be any difference made in the divine distribution of loving kindness because of our degree of ability. You see how Spurgeon is encouraging those who outwardly have very little to offer. And you might say, well, these, these don't seem to be categories of sin so much. Uh, no, I, I think he's already been trying to address some of that. Now he's talking about some of the other things that uh, in, in Satan's wickedness he will try and use to keep the troubled and the distressed the, uh, from, from coming to Jesus Christ. And now he says, most likely there's some doubting brother here. Whenever he opens our own hymn book, that's the, the hymn book that Spurgeon had uh, established for the tabernacle. Previously, they'd used uh, Watts's Psalms and Hymns and uh, Rippon's Hymnal. Spurgeon had decided, because he got fed up with watching people faff around with two hymn books, uh, that he'd establish his own. Uh, it's a great hymn book, by the way, if you ever get a chance to, to look at a copy. He says... Whenever he opens our own hymn book, he very seldom looks to the Golden Book of Communion, but he generally turns to hymn 590 or thereabouts and begins to sing Contrite Cries, which is one of the sections in the hymn book. Incidentally, hymn 590 is a, a Charlotte Elliott hymn. With tearful eyes I look around. Life seems a dark and stormy sea, yet mid the gloom I hear a sound, a heavenly whisper, come to me. Spurgeon says that's, that's, that's where you're living. But he says, if the weakest Christian is in the boat of salvation, that is, if he trusts in Christ, he is as safe as the strongest Christian, because if Christ failed the weak one, he would fail the strong one too. I've nearly done, he says, but I will suppose that for a moment there's been a work of grace in a prison. So here now his closing illustrations and applications. Half a dozen villains there are, but the grace of God has made new men of them. And they're looking across the room and they see half a dozen of the apostles, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Paul, Bartholomew and so on. And they might say, we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they, even as those apostles are. Can you catch the idea, he asks, and make it your own? Next sentence is superb. Listen to this, he says. And you, you've got to hear the humour now in, in Spurgeon's voice and how he uses that too to make his point. When artists have drawn pictures of the apostles, they've often put a halo round their heads, very like a brass pan or something of that kind, as if to signify that they were some particular and special saints. But there was no such halo there. The painter is far from the fact. We say it, and say it seriously and thoughtfully, that twelve souls picked from the scum of creation who look to Christ shall be saved even as the twelve apostles are saved. Halo or no halo, they shall join in the same hallelujah to God and the Lamb. That's just wonderful how he uses the humour just to open up the mind and open up the heart and then seriously and thoughtfully. He goes from that, uh, that, that smile, that laugh and having uh, exposed you, he presses home the truth. He says you could do the same with the three Marys whom Jesus loved and who loved Jesus. And he said you might take three weeping prostitutes penitent for their sins and they might say, we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we three reclaimed harlots shall be saved, even as they, those three holy matrons who lived near Christ and were his delight. Ah well, says one, this is grace 
indeed. This is plain speech and wonderful doctrine that God should make no distinction between one sinner and another when we come to him through Christ. And Spurgeon says, if you've understood this, go to Jesus at once with your soul and may God enable you to obtain complete salvation at this hour. Here's pardon for transgressions past. It matters not how black they're cast. And oh, my soul, with wonder view, for sins to come, here's pardon too. It's a great sermon. It's uh, so full of comfort, uh, so full of hope, so full of uh, gospel beauty, so full of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Grace, the one way of salvation. I hope you'll join us again on another occasion. Next week we're reading from Sermon 766 to 772 and the featured sermon is 769, Serving the Lord with Gladness. So do come back on that occasion if you're able and may God indeed bless us with that glorious Saviour and his so great salvation that we may understand that it truly is grace by which we have been saved through faith, that not of ourselves, It is the gift of God through Christ Jesus our Lord.